Welcome to the Millennial Pastor Podcast, where we talk about the intersection between faith and culture. I'm your host, Josiah, and once again, I am flying solo today, folks. My co-host, Byron, well, man, I'm tempted to just say a whole lot of ridiculous things about him because he's not here to defend himself. But the truth be told, I am trying to crank out a bunch of podcasts before my life gets really crazy. And not very long, we will add another child to the mix and we'll have four kids and I will never, ever sleep again. So as as a result of that, we have some scheduling difficulties. Byron actually works a real job. I say that tongue in cheek because obviously pastoring is a real job, but that's our little joke we have with each other. He jokes that I only work on Sundays. But anyways, he's not here today. He will be sorely missed, but that's okay because on today's show, we have some great guests because because there's two of them. And this may be the first time, I think this is the first time we've done this. On today's show, we have a married couple that co-pastors together. On the show today, we have Jen and Johnny Blake. Can you guys hear me? Hello. Hello. Hi, guys. I don't think we've done this before, so this will be really interesting and different. But we normally have our guest, one singular guest, give us their name, their age, and their location, because... What we also do in this podcast is kind of establish whether or not you guys fit the stereotype of millennial. So before we really get to that and have some fun with the stereotype playing a game, we need to know briefly a little bit about you. So we'll have, for the sake of, we'll trade off back and forth. Jen, go first. Jen, give us your full name. Give us your age. Give us where you currently are at. All right. Well, I'm Jen Blake, and I am 36, and we co-pastor at the Edmonton Southside Church of the Nazarene in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. So 36. I don't want to do math. What year were you born? 1983. So okay. I think, I think I'm just in the millennial category. Yes. According to Pew Research, if you're born 82 to like 97, you're a millennial. But so we- I just made it. We'll prove that. We will prove that with some stereotypes in a moment. What about you, Johnny? Give us full name, age, location. I, I mean, I guess we can assume the same location, but give it to us anyways. Okay. Uh, full name, Jonathan Peter Blake. Um, there's the full one. Um, age, 32. And so I am safely in the millennials. Um, <laughs> and that's right. I am younger. And what was it? Oh, I am two rooms down from Jen right now. <laughs> so you're in, in Edmonton as well. That's right. We are in the same city together. So there's, there's going to be some interesting fun with this. We've had a couple um, non, well, I guess they weren't born in America. We've had a guest or two that was born somewhere else that maybe added some some interesting perspective on the stereotype. Uh, I'm going to add one question. Where were you both born? Uh, Johnny, where were you born? So a town, North England, called Carlisle. Uh, that's where I was born. Okay. What about you, Jen? I was born in San Diego, California, but grew up in Prescott, Arizona with you. With me. It, it might be worth noting that we were in the same youth group together, which is curious. I mean, if you think about it, Jen, there's an awful lot of people that went into ministry from our very small youth group. I was saying that to our church secretary yesterday. I was saying it is amazing. Our church youth group, I think there's probably a, there's at least a 50%, if not more, of people who are engaged in full-time ministry or engaged in church as lay ministers, which yeah. is pretty awesome for our youth group. I think Prescott Church did a good job in keeping us grounded um, in some good ways. Which is crazy. I mean, because I, I agree. I think they did a great job. But if if you listen to me and Byron's first uh, 
first podcast, our pilot episode, we obviously had some grievances we aired too, because even though they did a great job with some equipping, there are some things that drove us nuts about being the redheaded stepchildren in youth group sometimes. <laughs> oh, yes. That's true. But there was a lot of love, and I think they did something right to to have that statistic, I think is pretty cool. Yeah, it's crazy. I would I totally echo that. I think it's about a 50%. Half of that youth group went on to do some sort of ministry, parachurch, something, which is nuts. Um, so anyways, you, you were born in America. Johnny, you were born in the UK. So I don't know. There's been a little bit, little bit of a toss-up for me whether these stereotypes actually hold water internationally. So, mm. so we'll find out. Um, so what we're going to do is to, to prove, maybe, because there's an international uh, element to this, prove how millennial you are. We're going to play a game called How Millennial Are You? It's, it's going to be so much fun, guys. Don't worry. I know it's... Uh, I'm sure you've had stereotypes that people have operated under the assumption of when they related with you to some degree, but but we'll prove it. We like to confront these stereotypes. We like to address the fact that if you label something, it's basically just a something. It's not a person, but people have names. So if you operate under the stereotype of millennial, you reduce that person to that stereotype. And so we like to have fun by confronting it, by treating people stereotypically. Nice. So. So because I'm very curious as to the international veracity of these claims, we're going to start with you, Johnny. Does that sound fair? Hey. Yep. Oh, great. All right. Especially since, as you noted, you're, you're well within the generation. So we'll see. <laughs> we'll see if this holds water. So we're going to start with part one of this game is the actual stereotypes themselves. And every now and then I might throw one at you too, Jen. Um, okay. But there's going to be three questions. These questions are very stereotypical in nature. I kind of feel like I need to apologize before I ask these questions because maybe they sound slightly insulting, but they are deeply rooted in very, very strongly held stereotypes of our generation. So uh, we'll score it out of three. So we'll see if, uh, well, you'll, you'll get a hint. You'll, you'll, you'll see how it goes. We'll, we'll okay. start with the questions. So Johnny, question number one, do you know how to adult? Do I know how to adult? <laughs> so, I, I have so no here, idea. Here's the stereotype then. I'll unpack it for you. Um, Thank you. We've been accused of not knowing how to do adult-ish things. So, for instance, uh, there's been stories out there about how millennials don't even know how to write checks, which might impact mm -hmm. your church because maybe you have to create some sort of online giving portal, right, for tithing. Uh, there's been uh, a slew of stories out there about how community colleges in America, at least, have had to offer things like a sewing class because millennials don't know how to sew buttons, but they're blamed for not knowing that. It's not really addressed that maybe the education education system or their upbringing failed them. Um, there's also things out there that millennials are are blamed for ruining, like the stove industry now has beef because most millennials would rather have their food delivered or go out to eat than actually cook food. So simply simply adulting, like you know, the the main millennial stereotype is that they never leave home. They don't know how okay. to adult. They live with their parents. Yeah. How adult am I? Ah, probably then not very. And um, <laughs> mainly, mainly because I have Google. And so why, why would you need to adult when you could just ask Google and Google tells you? Um, so, so probably on a scale of, the, of how adult, ah, not very. Um, I don't try very hard either. So, um, and I'm, I'm okay with that. 
Um, so it kind of helps our older congregation feel like they still have <laughs> to teach you. Teach me. So I kind of play to that. So that's good. So no, I'm I'm not, and I'm comfortable not um, doing that. In fact, I love the idea of ordering pizza right now. So <laughs> instead of cooking it yourself. Yeah, why bother, right? Right. I mean, exactly. I think, I think you're saving the planet by not turning the oven on. <laughs> so basically, you would rather YouTube or Google search than actually know how to do a thing. So, if I okay, understand so. you, you are very millennial. Then, yeah, yes, YouTube is his best friend in, <laughs> in regards to how do I do stuff. YouTube. That's awesome. Well, Jen, how about you? Did you move out uh, before you were thirty? Yes, definitely. <laughs> Okay, so Johnny Johnny's gonna score a one for three on this so far, but Jen is O for three so far. So let's go to question two. We'll stick with Johnny first. Okay. How many hours a day do you spend on social media being a keyboard warrior? Or mm. I guess in your case, on Google or YouTube learning how to be an adult. Yeah, that's true. Um hmm. uh, I probably spend more than I should. And that would be a few hours, I guess. Um, not so much on Facebook. You know, YouTube is, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a good one. I mean, you got to watch YouTube to kind of watch how your favorite wrestler is doing. You know? <laughs> I, I can watch YouTube for hours and I'm like, man, where did that day go? Because, you know, I'm watching, you know, 2005 reruns of uh, WrestleMania. Um, right. And yeah. I don't regret it because it's, you know, those are beautiful moments. Well, and they um, also learn your habits, so they cater the next upcoming video to what you're going to stick around to watch. They got me. Um, and so well done, YouTube. <laughs> so the stereotype is that we spend all day, every day on our smartphones or on screens. But what's interesting is there has been some research done. Uh, Forbes, I think it was, or maybe Business Insider did a whole host of research with Nielsen. And it actually shows that Boomers spend just as much time on any of those things, YouTube, Google, Facebook, generally on their smartphones as millennials. But millennials are the ones that get the bad rap for it. So, sure. And that's what, okay. We, we can take that. Yeah, we can. we can live with it. What about you, Jen? Are you a stereotypical keyboard warrior? Yeah, I spend far too much time on my phone. <laughs> so that's, that's a one, one for three for you, and then maybe two for three for Johnny. I don't know. We'll Jen, jury's mm. still out, but so far, Johnny, you sound like you're fulfilling the stereotype. Living the dream. <laughs> Living the dream. All right, question number three. <laughs> this is really, I mean, if this one could count for extra points, then this one would be the one that, that would basically set you over either way. So, Jen, if you answer the right way to live into the stereotype, it doesn't matter that you you actually are sort of an adult or whatever. But this last question, we'll start with Johnny, but this is kind of a, we'll see, because you guys probably share share some of this together. But do you spend more money on avocados or coffee, Johnny? Hmm. Here's a fun fact <laughs> about me. So talking about stereotypes, I'm, I'm an English person who hates tea and coffee. Um, huh. I'm a cheap date. So... <laughs> I, so and although I did try, I went, I went to a, 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 a cafe not too long ago, and I tried an avocado smoothie. Um, it was probably the worst thing I've ever tried in my life. <laughs> I was literally sipping up puke. 
it was just and, and I normally like avocados, but you smush it and you try and drink it, it's it's not good. So that one is a tough one. Um, I I probably maybe the avocado one, but really that I don't know. I that one kind of I'd rather I'd rather neither. Um, but yeah, that that's an well, inconclusive. It's, it's not necessarily avocados to drink there. Yeah, it's avocado on it's toast like is the stereotype. Oh, he, he eats a lot of avocados. But I don't do it in drink. Okay. Oh, why am I talking oh, about drink? Um, that's true. So sure, why not? I'll go for avocados mainly because um, I don't drink tea or coffee. So that's interesting. That's I don't know. Does that really put me down the millennial? I don't know. Well, Maybe. it doesn't matter. We've we've learned. Well, let, let me ask Jen, and then I'll respond. Jen, what would it be for you? Avocados or coffee? Avocados, because I don't drink coffee either. Interesting. Mm. So the stereotype is that millennials just love avocados on toast and they eat it like every meal or something ridiculous like that. Huh. But I, I, I grew up in the Southwest of the United States with Jen and that doesn't really hold water because you can be any age and love guacamole and love avocados because it's much more of a cultural thing. <clears throat> but it's really interesting to me, the coffee tea thing, because this is the one that I'm not sure holds water in other countries because you know, avocados are, are primarily imported to this country from Mexico. So I'm not sure how you would get avocados in England or if you even can. So. Yeah, they're expensive and not nice, so we never bothered. But being here in Canada, we can get them more readily, and so we do eat a lot of avocados now. Well, and yeah, the other, what was that, Johnny? Sorry. I was going to say, yeah, avocados have made their way to the UK, just to, to clarify that. Um, they came on boats. So, yeah, maybe not the freshest things when they get over there, or what? No. Uh, no, I, I had avocados. My first time at avocados was when I was in Uganda, um, and yeah. they were fresh they were good and then when i came back to the uk i was like oh man i gotta get and they were like grapes it just <laughs> it was disappointing but they you know they still came in so i don't know who knows with brexit we may get more avocados interesting because the other the other half of that stereotype of course the the avocado thing is a stereotype but the other half the coffee thing there's a whole bunch of research and it's not even so much a stereotype as it might just be real life um millennials may spend more on coffee than on their own retirement. Wow. Makes sense. Why not? Yeah. Well, I mean, when you consider how much it costs at Starbucks or up there, you guys have Tim Hortons, right? Yep. That's right. Yeah. I mean, what is we the price of, a, well, what's the price of like the average coffee at a Tim Hortons compared to a Starbucks? I don't know. Cause we don't drink it. <laughs> Fair enough. That is, okay. that is true. And Tim Hortons is cheaper. Yeah. Okay. Tim Hortons is cheaper. People can yeah. easily spend five, six, seven bucks on a single drink at a Starbucks. So, right, it's it is quite a bit less. I think you look in two or three bucks. I think. Um, okay. But you know, water's free. That's true, and you can also just make your coffee at home, which is what I do. I don't know if I spend more on coffee or retirement. I'd have to ask my wife, who pays a lot closer attention to our finances. So, so I don't know. I don't know how to score this one, guys. Um, I would I would want to say that. You're probably sort of millennial. Jen, you're, you're probably a millennial. You might be two for three. Johnny, you might be three for three. But obviously, I pick questions that are very biased and are slanted against you. So that's, <laughs> that's kind of the point of that game. It's a fun thing to confront stereotypes with. But, but we'll, play, we'll play part two because part two might be more important, not just for ourselves to understand, but 
for our churches, for our listeners to understand, there are plenty of headlines that feed into this stereotype. And a lot of them are shared in a way that's possibly slightly biased and intentionally negative towards a whole host of people that make up, at least in this country, the largest uh, population, uh, generationally speaking. So we can trade off if you guys would like, or we'll start with Jen and we'll see see how it goes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you three opportunities Every chance, every opportunity, you're going to have three headlines and you're going to try to guess which one is the actual real life headline um, and which two are fake. So does that make sense? Yeah. All right, Jen, we'll start with you. This is the first round of headlines. Headline number one is three ways to be more like Yoda when leading millennials. Headline number two, for millennials, working nine to five is not the norm. Headline number three, millennials are the most difficult generation to employ, and here's why. Okay, so the real one. Yeah, you got to pick the real one, and you got to tell us why. What's your rationale? I'm going to say the Yoda one. Really? Because it's, it seems so unreal. <laughs> <laughs> so because of the sensational nature of it, that's why you're picking yep. it. Yep. Wow, your instincts are spot on. That is the real one. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah, so here's the deal. It was on May 4th, I guess, and it was uh, May the 4th be with you, you know, all that Star Wars pun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it was Forbes. It was actually a Forbes article, and it's three ways to be more like Yoda. And apparently, because of their research and whoever wrote this, it's much more of a narrative article, um, but there's some research to it. Basically the assumption is every millennial wants a Yoda in their life. <laughs> and, and it's due in part from some of the questions, this article writer, his name is William, uh, like William Vander Bloemen. Uh, he was asking who, who these people's favorite characters were in star Wars. And he thought because of all the new characters, it was going to be one of them, but everyone said it was Yoda. Um, so I, he, he made all these connections, all these assumptions after asking more questions. And it's basically because, People really want good mentoring. So it kind of, it has a serious bent to it, but the headline's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Johnny, you want to take a stab at the second one? Okay. All right, so you guys are going to have a collective uh, marital score on this one. This one is, uh, this, this whole part two of this game is all about how well we understand how the stereotype is leveled against us. So here are the three headlines, Johnny, pick which one you think is real. Okay. Headline one is most millennials fear parenting, but are among the highest in pet adopters. Headline number two, millennials really love plants. Headline number three, currently only one in four millennials are parents. Oh, yeah. One and three are very similar. Um, the plant one, I'll leave that alone because uh, I don't really care for those. Um, <laughs> um so I'm gonna go for oh, I'm gonna go for number one. Um, the fearing the yeah, bunch of millennials get their dog and have that for about five years before they work out to have a child. So I'm gonna go for that that one. Number one. So while that might be accurate, while that might really be happening, that is not the real headline. The real headline is the millennials really love plants. I was gonna say that. I was gonna say that one. Yep. Well, good for you. <laughs> 
So it's a Business Insider article, and it's it basically is all about succulents and how millennials really love them. How millennials are credited with wiping out numerous industries, but they're giving the plant industry life because they like to delay parenthood, but they still want to care for something. So it has the same stereotypical connotations as the other two headlines as this like fear of parenting, but they need to nurture something. So they have to nurture succulents. Yeah. It's, makes sense. It's True. pretty, it's pretty fantastic. Yeah. All right. So <laughs> number three, third chance, third opportunity up for grab. Jen, you want to take this one? Sure. All right. So, so far, I guess you're, you're one for two collectively. So this is a chance for redemption to really understand how the stereotype is used. So here are your three headlines. <clears throat> Despite struggling to leave mom and dad's house, millennials seem to think they can change the world. Headline number two, are millennials far too optimistic? A new study suggests they may be just that. <laughs> Headline number three, millennials are delusional about the future, but they aren't the only ones. I'm going to go with number two. Why? What was that one again? Are <laughs> <laughs> um, millennials... Are millennials far too optimistic? A new study suggests that they might be just that. Um, yes. I, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stick with number two. Um, I, I don't know. I think it goes back to that whole we like to talk and we like to think things are going to change, but we're not really willing to change. So obviously you may have noticed all of these sets of three have similar threads and similar themes. So it's a little bit stacked against you. But the, the real headline... Is, Sorry, you got it wrong, I guess I'll say. Yeah. The real headline is millennials are delusional about the future, but they aren't the only ones, which is really nice, really nice yeah. way of saying that one. So it's, again, this is, it's weird because Business Insider and Forbes, they just crank out headlines about millennials because they seem to care about the largest generation and what they're doing. But some of the, the key takeaways from this article is it says many Americans expect to buy a house or retire one day but aren't saving for it. Uh, it says one quarter of millennials who expect to retire between 66 and 75 have no retirement savings account, which is then perpetuated by, you know, habits of going to Starbucks or whatever. And then it says, this is where it's interesting because it does call out millennials, but it says they're not the only ones. It says nearly half of Gen Xers have no retirement account, which is crazy. Um, despite most expecting to retire between 56 and 75, and then it says 31% of millennials, 25% of Gen Xers, and 12% of baby boomers want to own a home but are not saving for one. Very interesting. But, it, I mean, it, they could have simply said people are delusional, but instead they said millennials are delusional because it's not just millennials that are, I guess, acting delusional about their future. Mm -hmm. Anyway, you guys, so collectively, I guess you are one for three in the headlines, but you definitely represented when it came to the stereotype. So I thank you for that. Perfect. I'm happy. <laughs> and I'm not sure. What do, you, what do you think, guys? How do you think this holds up internationally? Is it, is it a whole different set of stereotypes? Is there such a thing as the millennial stereotype anywhere but America? What do you think? I, I don't. I think it, it's similar. I, it's, it's it's still Western culture, right, in yeah, the UK. Sure. So, so I think it's 
yeah, that's, I think it would have been the same answers um, and it's the same response. So, no, I think it, it, we, are, we are growing. It's good. It goes over the pond. And so we can unite as millennials. I like it. Collectively join forces. <clears throat> yeah. Super fun. Well, thanks for playing that game, guys. Uh, we, we have a couple more quick questions for you before we get into the nitty-gritty, but we just want to, instead of leave it at the stereotype, we want to briefly get to know each of you slightly better than the, the shallowness of a stereotype. So briefly, if you could tell me, um, where did you get your education and ministry experience? And we can start with you, Jen. Where did okay, you get uh, your yeah. education? Education. So I got my BA at Point Loma Nazarene University in San Diego. Um, graduated from there in 2005 and then um, had felt a call to uh, to missions and just wanted to be overseas and so ended up going to Nazarene Theological College in Manchester, England for my master's degree um, just because I didn't want to move to the Bible Belt um, and so wanted to get out of the States, went there um, and ended up never leaving until we moved here to Canada and um, was the associate pastor of the Carlisle Church of the Nazarene and England and then um, met Johnny while I was there and he came on as a youth pastor placement student and then we co-pastored our first church together in Wales in Fly, um, which you kind of spit out the side of your mouth to say hmm. and um, we're there for four and a half years before we moved here to Canada in 2016 and are now co-pastoring uh, the Edmonton Southside Church. Where, where did you get your education Johnny? So um, I, I got, I've only got a BA and I'm pretty content with staying with that <laughs> at NT um, in Manchester. Uh, they were gracious with me because I am the least academic person um, that you probably, probably meet. In fact, I didn't really want to go to um, uh, college at all. The only reason I wanted to go to college when I was younger was to maybe play cricket, um, which, um, you know, that's a great sport that's never made it over here, um, but never mind. So, but I, did, I, went, I went to NTC and um, got my BA and yeah, pretty, pretty happy with that, that I got through that and here I am. Well, in a little bit, I want to ask even more questions about co-pastoring as a married couple, because that's something that's super fascinating for me. But before we do, we're going to jump into some more questions based on your experiences, your education that, that center around this thing called church, because it's probably a meaningful conversation to have particularly since if you look at a lot of the stats, our generation seems to have less and less engagement with it. So let's, let's, let's head that direction. Sounds good. As with all of our guests, we like to, to have some of those questions in the form of, or not those questions in the form some of those topics of conversation in the form of questions, because it's meaningful to not live into the stereotypes, but to address the fact that there is a stereotype for a reason, particularly with the disengagement from church uh, of our generation. So with that being said, I'd like to ask each of you to maybe articulate in your own words, simply put, what is church? What is this thing that so many seem to be leaving? Uh, but what is it? What is it uh, defined in your own words? So why don't you start, Jen? Okay. Um, well, church for me is uh, just a body of believers who come together and it can look very different than what we grew up with. Um, and I think that's not an unhealthy thing. Uh, not that church that we grew up with is is wrong, but um, finding new creative ways to engage people within the gospel of Christ. Um, 
is a challenge that we're facing nowadays um, and maybe probably why so many of our generation have become disengaged with the traditional church model. Um, so, so church is that gathering of, of Christ followers who just have a desire to live out the gospel um, in their lives. What about you, John? Do you have anything to add to that? Yeah, that's that's good. I like the idea of when I think of church, I think of community. And I think when church, when when it's when when it's done right, I think it's pretty unstoppable. Um in, in terms of compassion and discipling and love and, and equipping and sending people. I think church is, is pretty unstoppable when we when when we get it right, um or seek to get it right, I guess. Um so I, I, I love church um for for the community that it can be. Yeah, I think maybe the stats have a hard time quantifying what what is being left because maybe they're leaving institutionalized church. So maybe mm-hmm. I, I think the the research like Barna and Pew Research and all these other outlets basically would say it's about sixty to seventy percent maybe disengage from church. But what that might actually mean is they just stop going to like a Sunday morning gathering. You know, yeah, exactly. I, it, it, yeah. So redefining what churches might be helpful and maybe alleviate some anxiety because it's, you know, it's a significant conversation, a, a significant shift that might be necessary to, to help us reimagine what it means to, to live in that community. So with that, with that question out of the way, I also like to ask our guests why they haven't been that statistic, why they haven't disengaged. It's kind of unique. Not only are you both, I mean, I, we we proved it with science with our game. You both are millennials, right? So not only are you millennials, but you're also pastoring in the church. So that's that's exceptional. So why why has that been the path you chose as opposed to I mean, why didn't you leave? Have you ever thought about leaving the church and why didn't you? Um, I think for me, I, I think it goes back to that one headline that you know, the the Yoda one actually of there is that mentorship level. And I think I, when I reflect back on my time growing up in the church on the Arizona district and just the, the leaders within the denomination who invested in me and gave me an opportunity to serve and to, to figure out a call in my life um, because they were willing to take that risk. And so like, I think of Frankie Fugate and Cindy Snowden and, and these children's pastors who just said, go for it. You know, they, they saw something in me and they encouraged me and embraced me and loved me through it. And I think if I didn't have that investment from key leaders throughout, and then even within, within youth and um, at college and everything, people giving that opportunity, I think that's what's kept me there. I mean, obviously my faith has stayed as well, um, which is huge because if I didn't believe, then why would I be here? But yeah. The fact that people actually invested in me, it gives you that connection and it gives you that place to belong. And I think that's what's kept me in. Hmm. What about you, Johnny? Hmm. Yeah, that's uh, um, pretty pretty much the, the same. I, I didn't grow up in the Nazarene church, uh, so I'll get that out there now. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's okay. I guess we'll forgive you. Is that what the response should be to that? <laughs> perfect. Yeah. Um, no, I'm still, I, I'd still consider myself pretty new into the denomination. Um, okay. Anyway, so, um, but I grew up um, in various denominations and, and similar to, to Jen, I, I was very blessed and uh, always been having a place I mean, even put it into this term. So when we moved here from the UK uh, to Canada, I mean, you're moving 
pretty extreme that from not just one community to another, one country uh, to another. And, and you hear so many stories of people when they move from you know, state to state or another province in Canada or another country, the biggest trouble they have is, is finding a new community. Um, you know, I've talked to so many people who are also new immigrants here to Canada and they say they're lonely and they don't have uh, friends. Yet, okay, we, we kind of are in a community as the pastors, but that's the beauty of the church that I experienced is, you know, we moved here and straight away felt at home because we had people surrounding us. And so I think that for me is, is my experience of, of the church um, has been um, a place to belong and, um, and take my quirks and all the rest of it uh, and allowed me to, to be and to journey with them. And uh, so, yes, yeah, so that's um, what's, what initially kept me uh, in the church. So for both of you, we can go back to you, Johnny. The, the next question I ask is, what do you love most about the church, if it's maybe different than what has kept you engaged? Is there something that you just say, man, this is just the best part about church? What might that be? I think it, 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 it's the reason why I'm in, in the church. And I go back to the, the sense of community um, is why, I've, uh, why, why I love uh, the church and and what I love is when uh, even just two or three um, you know guys get together and just wrestle with life you know um, talk just what is what we're struggling with what we're dealing with and get real um, so I, that's what I love about church is um, journeying with people um, and, and doing life what about you Jen is there something besides what has kept you involved the, the being mentored and the relational side of it that that you would say is just the best thing about church yeah I, I love the like johnny said you know the journey together and being able to be vulnerable with each other and open and and the fact that you know all all are welcome um you know that that might not show up in all churches but that's <laughs> our desire for our churches is that all are welcome it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done or, or where you, what you look like even but you know all are welcome because christ is is has died for you as well and and so being able to as well engage the church with the community that they're locally in um, is, is very key for both of us um, and how we live our life, but how also we minister um, and important for the church, I think is to, to be involved in its local community. So not just to become this, this click of people who all believe the same thing, but how are we going to spread the good news if we're just spending time with each other? So we also have to have that, that relationship, broaden out and, and engage the local community as well. So final question. And then I, um, well, final kind of question we ask every guest before we get into, to Jen and Johnny specific questions. <clears throat> Are there things in your perspective and your experience that you've lived through that you think the church could maybe fix that needs addressing that needs to be done away with in, in the so-called church arena? What do you think, Jen? Um, well, I've, um, I don't know. <laughs> Done away with. I think, and, and it, it's a hard one because I I struggle with it as well. I remember I remember in our last church when uh, we did the radical thing of uh, canceling our Sunday evening services, <laughs> and um, <laughs> tradition is a hard thing to let go of. Yeah. Um, I'd grown up in churches with Sunday evening services and that's what you did. And so even as pastors, when we made that decision, because it just wasn't fruitful, um, I was struggling because I'm like, but I've always gone to church on a Sunday night. What are we going to do? And 
it wasn't that we were canceling it to cancel it. It was canceling it. So we had the opportunity to do something else um, as a church to engage our community. So it was, it was for good reasons, but I know my tradition in my short lived life was a challenge for me to make that decision. And so I think the church in the, in general tradition is a hard thing that we really have to look at and say, is it, is it time for something different? It's not that it's bad. It's not that it's, you know, what we've been doing is wrong, but just things need to change slightly in order to reach a greater number um, and kind of release our holds on those things that we love and hold dear because that's how we've always done it. Uh, and it's so, not easy. So perhaps letting go of the, we, we're doing it because that's just always how we've done it is something the church could do. Exactly. A little yeah. better. What about you, Johnny? Is there is there stuff that needs fixing in the church? What do you think? So I think a lot of it is maybe our attitude to church. So often we think of church as doing something. So we you know we go to church. Um, you know we have a mindset of um, do church well rather than be church. And I think there's there's one issue there is just the whole mind frame of church is is it something that that we do. Or is it something that we be? And I think that's something that we can wrestle with. But I think when our actions are doing, so, um, for example, it, you know, we would say the end goal is not bums on seats on a, on a Sunday morning, but sometimes our actions actually show that is what we want. Um, yeah, is, that's it. That's that is, the pinnacle, that's, right? That's the pinnacle, right? You know, we say... Um, we're, we're desiring to make Christ-like disciples, but are we making Christ-like disciples or are we aiming to fill that seat so the stat looks a little better next year at the uh, district assembly, right? Um, yeah, when you report your numbers. You know, everyone sweats a little bit when they're crunching the numbers and is that arrow going to go up? You know, um, am I a healthy pastor? Um, so... Yeah, that's my kind of uh, little grudge that I'm part of as well is, okay, how do we, rather than seeing church as something that we just do, it's what does it look like to say we be the church? And I think if we if we aim for that, I think that might look healthier, I guess. So speaking of, this this is a perfect segue because I'm so curious. I'm, I'm a, I generously am given the title lead pastor, but I think a more appropriate title is only pastor in my mm. church. Oh, it's a smaller church. I don't have associates. I have lay leadership. I have some, I have a youth director. I have some people that are directors. They're, you know, SDMI president, NMI president, all those fancy acronyms that are just lay leaders in the church. Um, but it's curious to me, you're speaking of annual pastor reports. You guys are both your co-pastor, right? So, so yeah. when it comes time for your reporting to the denomination, you both have to fill out separate reports, right? No, we're both on the same report. Ah, see, I was I was interested to find out if you have to like fill out the reports together to make sure you have the right numbers, and the same numbers for everything. No, I, I I do the report filling, and the the quirky thing with the with our system in the denomination is they haven't allowed for co pastors. They allow for it in so much as we can put both of us in, but when I go to report our continuing education, we look really good because they add it together. <laughs> So you basically want like that biblical, the two shall become one in yeah. a very real way. When in a very real anything. way. Yep. Yeah. We've always shared the senior pastor salary and uh, yeah, we've always been in, in churches that don't have other staff as well. So we've, it's just, we're the only two, but 
Well, only two, not just one. So walk me through um, how the how the hiring process works. Obviously, mm. uh, it's you know when I was hired, my wife was interviewed, and it was it was you know she was a part of the interview, I guess, but in a real way, she was kind of interviewed too. Even though I tried to make it very clear, you're not hiring her, you're hiring me. So she's just this added benefit and perk that you you are blessed with, but you don't get to expect. But it's different for for co-pastors. Um, so in the hiring process, uh, was the the church you're at now? Were they looking for co-pastors or or not? No. Well, they just put out for pastors. It, it's difficult. So because we're on one salary, um, it, it's it's in a some sense it's similar to what you were just saying there because um, the, there is expectations of us both as um, ordained elders in the Church of the Nazarene. But when you're only paying one salary, there's still only so much you can expect from two people. Um, so there is still that boundaries. How we do it is we give ourselves uh, as much as we can uh, to the church. Um, but the, um, the interview, yeah, both of us were via Skype interview, um, and it was to accept us as, as co-pastors. The church, the church board, they got it very quickly. Um, not all church boards do. We, we've interviewed for other churches in the past where very clearly they did not get it. Um, and um, that's fine. That, that's okay. Um, because we'd rather know right at the beginning that they weren't comfortable with that idea or they just didn't want, yeah, they didn't get it for whatever reason. Whereas we're very blessed here and uh, they embrace that idea and they embrace us as individuals and as a, a couple. And so that, that was good. So, yeah, so we interviewed together, and we kind of talk over each other and, you know, all the rest of it. <laughs> so do you, have, do you have to, like, pitch the idea? Or, I mean, because they weren't asking for co-pastors. Did you go in saying this is the benefits or this is what this would look like should you hire us? So we, we actually just submitted one CV, although – resume one one resume um for both of us and have both of us on it um because we we come as a package deal where <laughs> yeah and so, so they they weren't asking for that but did you it sounds like you're you're, you're kind of alluding to some of the boards that you had interviewed with didn't get it but this one did get it so how do you how do you so approach our, that conversation initially saying hey this is this is the great part about co-pastoring or whatever yeah, so that first church that didn't quite understand what we were getting at, that was actually when we were leaving our associate roles, and it was going to be the first time that we had actually co-pastored. And so that was our first church to be interviewed at. Our DS knew us really well in the UK, and so he kind of knew that we worked well together, and we had good recommendations from our senior pastor. Um, but we didn't honestly know how it would look to actually lead pastor a church together. And so there was a lot of risk, and, and they just didn't quite understand and because we didn't have this is how it works we didn't have those answers but the church that did call us um took that risk of two young pastors i mean johnny had just you hadn't even graduated yet had you johnny of from your ba and uh, actually no we went to go interview on the weekend that he graduated and um so we were really young and they took the risk of not knowing what it looked like so this time around when we felt god calling us to canada when we contacted the district superintendents um we were able to kind of present more this is how we function um because we'd been we'd been co-pastoring for four and a half years at that point so we so, had a, a little yeah. bit more background 
you share a salary, does that mean that you're also possibly a little bivocational or do you, or can you survive off of that? We survive off the one salary. Yeah, we, we give ourselves. So really you talk about a benefit of a co-pastor. If, um, if you make it work and you, and, and we're blessed here, we can make it work. Then you, you pretty much get in two for one. Um, <laughs> so there's your, there's your benefit, right? Um, and, and, and the church does not in any way take advantage of us. We, um, chose to, to come here and we chose, um, to accept the call. Um, but that is a benefit. We, we give ourselves to the church. Um, mm-hmm. now it's great in, in summer holidays when the kids are, um, cause we have three children, um, when the kids are off school, um, you know, we, we can then take it in turns to, to kind of do things. Uh, and don't feel guilty for both not working because they only pay one salary. So yeah. it works well. So um, so through school term, we give ourselves as much as we can. And uh, But then, yeah, during summer holidays or whatever, we're able to kind of switch it up a little bit and, and as flexible and try and balance, which sometimes doesn't always go well um that's something we continual to journey in and and wrestle with of the balance of family and church but summer you know that's the great thing of only getting one salary is we get to make that call of having a break yeah i i guess my designation would be bivocational or co-vocational um however you want to label that um my wife makes the money (laughs) she's a nurse so she is the income provider for our family and my church leadership gets it as well. And what that really means is they they kind of have reasonable, realistic expectations for how much time I really am able to contribute to the ministry of the church. Namely, because my wife, you know, she works three days a week. She's only part time. But since we make as much as we do, uh, it's much more affordable. And also, we just want this to be the way it is for me to stay home most of those days she's working with the kids and, and be as she lovingly refers to me as the house spouse. So it makes a lot more sense to do that. Uh, especially since there's kind of the realistic expectation based on pay scale and all that jazz, but it's interesting because that, that does create sometimes headaches for me. I don't always feel like I can spend as much time as I want, you know, spending time with people out being out in the community, uh, missionally engaging or just, you know, writing a sermon or whatever. It's, it's nearly impossible to write a sermon when you have a one and a half year old yelling at you all day, every day. So yeah. I'm curious with the family dynamics, you have three kids. Um, yeah. and so I'm assuming you have some sort of schedule for preaching and, and that sort of a thing. How does that, how does that, how does the weekend week out work? How does preaching, writing sermons work? How, how is there a separation from work, family life? How does that all work? So again, this church that we're at here has embraced us and our last church did too, um, and just loved us for who we are. And they knew that they were getting a family. Um, when we moved here, we had a one-year-old and a three-year-old and on our one salary, we can't afford childcare. So our kids make church their home and um, we have long cement hallways. They have their bikes here. They have their scooters um, <laughs> and they just get to play while we're working um, in the office. And, and in fact, right now, the three-year-old is at my feet. Oh, she's now three. She was one when we moved. She's now three um, underneath my desk on the iPad to try to stay quiet while we're recording this podcast. <laughs> don't, don't judge us. Um, but they've embraced us and our kids. And so there is no like, oh, don't let your kids do this or this or this, because they know that this is what you've got. Um, it also then provides a lot of flexibility. And I love it because then a lot of 
a lot of my focus is within our community. And so I'm able to go out with play dates with the kids and everything like that. And again, there's no judging of, oh, you should be in the office writing a sermon or you should be in the office reading books or you should be doing this or this. None of that happens. And um, they just have embraced us and loved us for who we are. And we're very thankful for that. So what's the, what's the balancing of responsibilities look like as far as the ministry side of things? Uh, do, do, do you trade off every week? Does one of you preach a series and then the other one preaches a series? What does that look like? We, um, we kind of, we, we trade off normally uh, one off, one on, one off the, the next week. Um, we, we kind of mix it around, you know, keep people on their toes um, as well um, on Sundays because we have very different preaching styles. And so, you know, we don't want to get people too comfortable of going, <laughs> oh, I know it's Johnny preaching this week. I ain't coming. <laughs> so now and again, we'll do like two weeks of Jen or whatever and totally throw them off the game. And so, but yeah, we're 50-50 when it comes to, when it comes to preaching. Um, how that works is whoever is uh, preaching, they, uh, at, so the school finishes, say, 3.15. The one who is not preaching takes the kids home and the person who is preaching gets a couple of hours to about, about five-ish um, to, to have time to themselves. Uh, we, we try and spend no more than six hours um, sermon prepping um, because we feel um, being a pastor isn't solely preaching. And so I think Absolutely. six hours to, to put out a 30 to 40-minute sermon. So that's we limit ourselves on that. So that allows us to spend more time with people in the congregation, in the community, um, you know, whatever kind of um, needs to be done. So we kind of have that that freedom during the day uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, that's how we kind of work. Where'd you come up with six hours? Because I was I was honestly borderline chastised once, and it wasn't from this denomination. It was from another denomination, which told me there was just a pastor in the community I'm in. He said you should be spending minimum 20 hours on a sermon. And I retort, I'm like, uh, do you even know who you're preaching to at that point? Because if you're basically locked away a minimum of 20 hours all week, you're not really getting to know anybody. Uh, and especially since if you look at, you know, how my, my salary is designated with labor and industry and all the fun legal stuff we have to jump through, I, I probably don't get paid for 20 hours of work a week. So I just looked at that person and laughed. But where, where did six hours come from? I, th I think for, for us, the six hours is just how it kind of breaks, you know, um, in, in those afternoon slots, you know, uh, three to five, you know, do that like three times a week. Um, Got it. You know, so, so it's kind of, of based on kids. Based on kids. But, but also, I mean, you can write a sermon if you needed to in two hours. I mean, if you ask any <laughs> your congregation, like straight after a sermon, they're always like, that was amazing. Thank you. You ask them three days later, hey, what did I preach on? <laughs> oh, I don't know. <laughs> and so why spend 20 hours on that, right? You know, when you could, a pastoring has been with the people as far as I'm concerned, so, um, and, and which, which can have a last, more lasting effect. So, yeah, I've heard that as well. We, you know, you get told you need to spend um, for, what is it, every minute should be like 30 minutes or something ridiculous like that in, in preparation um, that you, that you preach. It's, I don't know. I don't buy that at all. Um, I don't think, um, yeah, that's, that's not for me anyway. Hmm. So six hours works for both you, both you, Johnny, and also you, Jen. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much the time we have allotted to us of quiet. So, so <laughs> you, you, you make it work. Yeah, you make it work. And some days like, so last week I ended up with about two and a half hours because 
it's just been busy at the moment and actually sitting down to quiet. There was a bunch of admin stuff I needed to catch up on as well. Um, and then we're also very involved in the community. And so sometimes that filters in. So yeah, you make what you get work and you just pray a lot and trust that God's going to speak through you as you just humbly say, okay, God, it's not my words, but yours. Absolutely. It's curious because I had to take a step back. I'm, uh, you, you joked about recording a podcast with a three-year-old at your feet. I'm, I'm in my garage listening for my one-and-a-half-year-old taking a nap because my wife has some lifting restrictions with this pregnancy. She's, she's currently high-risk, and she can't even put my kid, uh, our youngest kid, down to sleep for nap time. So I'm, I'm basically – I'm at home all the time right now because my wife can't physically do the things that you would need to do when you're around – one and a half year old or a five year old. Um, so as a result, I, I had a really meaningful conversation with my board and they basically said, yeah, we can help figure it out. And so I have pulpit supply for the whole next month, um, nice. which is really great because not only regardless, we don't know, she could have to be rushed into an emergency C-section at a moment's notice, but we also have an actual scheduled date where they won't let her go any further because of the risks and since she can't lift stuff, I have to be around and, and just, you know, be there for my family, love on my kids and my wife. Um, but what's, what's curious to me is there's almost what, what I sort of told the board is I don't think I can balance life and work right now. I don't think I have the capacity right now to actually write even a two hour long, write you know, write for even two hours a sermon because I'm pretty much 24 seven trying to care for children and make sure my wife is, is, safe and healthy. So I'm curious for you guys, I mean, things come up, like you said, last week, there's some stuff that happens. Uh, what does it look like when you go home? I mean, for, for those two hours, are you in an office writing your sermons? Do you go to the church? Are you in a parsonage? Is there a separation uh, of work and family time? How does that, how does that play out in your lives? Separation of work and family. Yeah. Well, our life is church. So yeah, yeah. That's what, that, <laughs> That's what I was curious about. It seems like it kind of it all meshes together, huh? Yeah. Um, I think it takes intentional times of making sure that we're with our kids um, and focusing on them. So vacations are, are huge for us where we get away just as a family um, to make sure that our kids know that we are with them and that they are our priority as well. Um, we do try to make a point of not having something scheduled every evening. Um, we do have a church office, so we are blessed with the space to be able to, to write sermons. In our, in our last church, we actually wrote sermons on our bed upstairs because there was no other place to go. <laughs> and, um, and so that's quite nice, but it, it is all intentional. And some weeks we get it right and some weeks we don't get it right. And yeah, it's just, it's constantly learning. Do you have a day off where you both intentionally try to you know like turn off phones or not write a sermon and just focus on family time i mean does does that happen in your schedule yeah so we actually just moved our our day off from a monday to a friday um last october me too why why did you do that well so we always thought people are crazy taking friday off it's right before the weekend why would you want to do that and then when we tried it it was actually we realized that on monday all we did was talk about church because we're you debrief from Sunday, you are trying to figure out what your schedule is for the week. We never fully had a day off and we were challenged with that. And so we decided to, to trial it with our board and say, can we move our day to Friday? We now find that Friday, we can have a shutoff day um, where we, we don't 
talk church all day and we don't schedule things in every once in a while we have to do something on the Friday that's church related, but we can actually go and enjoy time with just the the three of us. Cause only one of our daughters is not at school. Um, our son and daughter are in school. So they're at school on Fridays, but we've got our three-year-old, we can go out, we can do something. We can go for the a dog walk or whatever and not focus on church. And then after school, enjoy time with both of our kids. And so Fridays we have been very intentional of trying not to, to be, um, not to not be church because we are still church everywhere we go, but well, to be the church, but not to do church administration not, at least. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it's curious. I mean, I guess every other week, whether it's Johnny or Jen, one of you might slightly be a little crankier on a Monday after preaching. Right. Because at least what, what psychologists would say is that adrenaline rush in that kind of recovery exhausts you on a Monday and you might just have a, a less sunny disposition, uh, physiologically speaking. So what's curious to me, the reason I shifted from Monday to Friday was that I was challenged once to say, would you rather give your family and your kids your best day or your worst day? Cause what he was basically postulating is that Monday you're in your worst crankiest mood because you just gave your everything physically chemically emotionally on a sunday and monday's the recovery day so we basically said you should do administrative stuff that you already hate doing on that monday because why not it's going to put you in a cranky mood but you're already cranky so it's fine and then once you get all your ducks in a row and do everything you're supposed to do in that week friday comes around and you actually have sort of a sunny disposition and you're giving your best on your day off to your family to your spouse and, uh, you know, kind of living into that, what God calls us to do, taking a break, taking a day off sort of a, a life. So it's just interesting to me, especially with both of you guys doing it. I don't know if you've experienced that or not, though, where one of you is more tired on that Monday because they preached or not. But Yeah. We, yeah we, we, go for it, Johnny. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah, I, I think we, we noticed that, but we, because we're both in it together, we kind of appreciate that, right? And, and, and you expect it. So, and we both, I guess, recovered in different ways as well. And, and, and so, so, yeah, it's taken account of that. So we, we like Jen says, we really appreciate the Friday. And uh, because the sermon's already kind of in your head, kind of in place. And I love sermon prepping. So I don't get stressed about even thinking about that on Friday, even if it's when we're walking and something's floating in my head. That's cool. That's, that's they're good thoughts, right? You know, when yeah. you're kind of, yeah. or whatever, we should all be doing that. So that's, that's not a bad thing at all. Interesting. Well, hey, we're going to probably need to start wrapping this this episode up, but I kind of I give the opportunity for our guests to give us a final thought. Um, and my final thought or the question I'd have to help help give this final thought would be for both of you. And it's something I'm pondering a lot. There's a lot made of this uh, shift that's happening in the church, not just generationally speaking, not just with our largest group of pastors uh, being retirement age and possibly aging out of the workforce, but with a shift from full-time uh, salaries to maybe being part-time bivocational, co-vocational, and, and kind of questioning whether that's good or bad. A lot of churches seem to have this idea in their head that they're succeeding when they can afford a pastor full-time. But there's something to be said, perhaps, about this model that you guys are living out because it affords you unique opportunities to get outside of the church building itself, but to be the church. So what, what would be, and you know, we can ask Jen to start uh, responding 
after she's thought about it for a second, what would be that, that shift that you think boards or lay leaders or just churches could start to make mentally to understand the role of pastor and to not have this success failure thing in their head about what they should or shouldn't be, but maybe doing what your board has been able to do for you and what my board has been able to do for me and being very gracious with reasonable expectations, but also just appreciating you for who you are. Like what's a simple step shift that, that our churches could maybe start to make to understand what it might look like to have pastors tomorrow. Yeah. I I think to realize that pastors are humans and that we're not Superman or Superwoman, and we don't have all the answers. We don't have all the energy. And Christ has called the church to be his body, not just the pastor. And and so I think a, a shift of it's not just down to the pastor to make sure that everything runs, but it's the church that needs to take up that mantle. And the pastor's there to guide and to lead and to shepherd. But if the church isn't taking it up, there's no chance that the pastor is going to survive that. And so to realize that everybody has a role to play. And uh, when we give that freedom to kind of be ourselves, then you're going to see fruit because there's going to be that opportunity for, for true leadership and not just having all of the things imposed on you. And this is what you have to do, but to say, nope, just lead us and we're going to support you and we're going to help and we're going to be a part of this. Priesthood of all believers. What about you, Johnny? What do you think? Mm. Well, that was, uh, yeah, she she said some good stuff there. That's one of the great things about uh, being a, a co-pastor is I can say I love my pastor. I, <laughs> I, I can even say my pastor's hot and not get in trouble, right? Um, um, yeah, that was some great words there. She's so smart. Yeah, I, I echo that for sure is embrace the person. Uh, em- embrace the call. It's unique uh, as well. Um you know, let's not get hung up so much on, on even credentials and, and even the education. What's the heart? What's their passion? Um, and that's where we've been so blessed in our churches uh, that we've been part of here as well is w- when we put in our resume that we just love being part of the community, you know, that we wanted to buy a house in this community that, um, where the church is to walk life with people and do life with people Um the, embrace their passion and what gets them going. Because I think if churches allow their pastor, church boards allow their pastors to embrace their passions, then I think you'll see them thrive rather than try to fit in some sort of box that, um, you know, whatever we may put them or expectations or based on the last pastor or whatever it may be, um, uh, just allow them to, to express uh, their passions um uh, as as Christians, as people, and uh, allow their natural calling as a pastor shine uh, through that. So that's kind of what I would um, encourage uh, a church board to, to do and consider um, when going through a process and open maybe open the door to the idea of something different like a co-pastor. Uh, I think there, there are so many blessings there and it's at times messy um, and complex and whatever, but I think at times we also see the beauty of it. Um, as you see a family uh, give themselves to a church, but also uh, get embraced by a church as well. So, yeah, there you go. Love it. Stop just trying to fit them into molds and let them be mold breakers and be who God has called them to be. 
Well, Jen, Johnny, I greatly appreciate the time you have given for this podcast, despite the fact that you do juggle the things that you juggle. Uh, but yes, yeah, simply, simply thank you. Thank you for being on this podcast with me. I really have appreciated it and enjoyed the time. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to wrap up this podcast with a word from our sponsorship and then my closeout. If you like this podcast, please feel free to rate, review, share, subscribe, do all those things. You can find us on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. But generally speaking, if you want to hear more about what millennials think or you like hearing about the faith-based work they're doing in culture, like Jen and Johnny, then stay tuned for more of the Millennial Pastor Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josiah, and maybe next time we'll hear about what Byron has been up to. But until then, we'll see ya.